Help us this morning. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you want to go ahead and be preparing, uh, turn to John 6. Uh, we're going to be going through 52 through 71. We're going to finish up chapter 6. Um, always love to be in the pulpit preaching. It's uh, one of the great joys of my life. I love to preach the Word of God, and I love to preach the Word of God at my church and in front of the people that I love and I care about. Uh, this body of believers who has accepted my family as, as their family. So I'm, I'm really excited about this. Not only am I excited about the fact that I'm getting to preach, but I'm excited I'm getting to preach these verses. I love this set of texts. This is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. It is, to me, one of the most comforting uh, sets of Scripture that we have. And it comforts me daily to know these things, these great concepts that, uh, and precepts that uh, Brother Kelby's been preaching so far. And why leave it? That's what I told him. Let's, let's finish this bad boy up and let's keep going in John. It's good enough for, for, for the early church. It's good enough for us, right? So this next set of scripture accounts what, if we were looking at it in the modern terms of ministry, what could be kind of uh, identified as a very difficult time in Christ's ministry. A very difficult setback is what most would look at it as in modern terminology. But we know who Jesus is. Now, for anyone who has led a church, I have, one of the most difficult things that somebody who leads a church faces is this, losing people. Sometimes we lose people by death. Sometimes people move. Sometimes people just leave you. And that is one of the most difficult things that a pastor faces is when people leave him. Because that's what we feel like. Do you hear that terminology I gave you? People leave him. That's what it feels like to a pastor. But we're talking about Jesus. We always need to keep in mind in every situation in Scripture that we're talking about Jesus. I'm going to say something here that may be controversial. Probably not. The Bible's not about us. It's about Jesus. It is all pointing to Jesus. So, we're not going to take and we're not going to apply to him emotions that maybe we would feel in his place. We're going to look at how he felt, what he did, what he had ordained. Because, you see, Jesus is working at this time as in every step he took in a sovereign plan that will be accomplished. He is not shaken by anything. So... Let us take joy in the fact that we serve a Savior who is not shaken. He is not surprised. He is not dumbfounded, ever. Now hear the infallible, inspired Word of God. John 6, 51 the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, that it is inspired and inerrant and infallible, that we can count on it. It stands the test of time. It is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And it testifies to supernatural events prophesied in Scripture, and not one was not fulfilled. We thank you that we can count on it. Holy Spirit, Illuminate our paths that we may see the word, we may grasp the word, we may hear what you have to say. Father, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen. So in this set of texts, pretty long set of texts, we have a lot to dig into. But I want to break a few things down in order to make sure we do it the proper justice. You see... I like to preach verse by verse because I know that the, the, the text is going to speak. It's going to speak to us. I don't have to figure out some, some cool uh, idea and give you 10 tips. I, t- I, I joked with uh, Brother Kelby. He said, everything will be great. I said, yep. I said, I'm going to sing three Bethel songs that last 15 minutes each, and then I'm going to preach 10 tips on how to live your best life now. And he said, of course, he knew that was a joke. Huh? Because if you're living your best life now, you're going to hell. So we're not doing that. We're going to let the text speak, right? We're going to let the text speak. It's good. Let's let it speak. Let's, first, let's look at the hard saying itself. What he said that was so hard. You saw, you saw how the disciples struggled with it, right? The people who were following him struggled with what he said. What was the hard saying itself? Verse 53 through 58 says this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, 
and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So this little section of scripture is disputed in some ways by some theologians, mainly doctrinally, mainly denominationally. It's argued. Uh, we need to see clearly first, before we dive into any other portion of the scripture though, one very important word. This is the word we need to take as the important piece that all of the rest of it hinges on, okay? One word, unless. This word, unless, he says, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This word shows exclusivity. It shows a necessary condition. Unless you do this, you don't get this. This word is important. The audience must eat and drink in order to have any part of Christ. In order to have life, they must eat and drink. Also notice that Christ, as the living bread, is compared to the manna from heaven. But notice the difference. He says, the manna, just like the manna that came from heaven, that God provided out of nowhere for his people to be sustained and live, yet they ended up dying. What's the difference between this new thing I want you to eat now? You eat this, and you have eternal life. Big difference. Big difference. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? These disciples ask a good question, okay? We don't get mad that they ask the question. They are asking an important question, and guess what? They think a lot like we do. We think the same way. We want to get past all of the, the excess stuff and the and the allegory, and the metaphor, right? We want to say, well, what does it even mean, right? And they're there to ask the question aloud. And I'm glad they did. Let's discuss it a little more, because commentators throughout the centuries have speculated that this text might mean that you must take Holy Communion in order to be saved. It is one, Holy Communion is is something that is given as a sacrament of, 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 of getting you back into good graces in the, in the Catholic Church. There are some denominations that believe if you don't partake of the communion, you're not saved. Um, I've got a problem with that. I disagree with it. And you know why? Because Scripture disagrees with it. Scripture does. Putting any stipulations on salvation other than Christ and His work is works-based salvation. And it goes against all that the Word tells us about salvation and who Christ is and what He has done for us. To put any other type of stipulation is to disagree with Christ Himself. I personally agree with Sproul and feel that Scripture bears it out. If we look at the, the narrative of Scripture, let's look at it 
And let's think about where we've come from, right? Because that's, that's what we do. If we, if, we te- if we preach expositorily, which is what we do here, we preach verse by verse, right? We don't leave them out. We, we go straight through the book. We know that he has been telling hearers since the beginning of John that he is the living water, that he is the bread of life, that they must be born again in him to have eternal life. He's speaking here of the new birth. That's what he's talking about. It's not about communion or or Lord's Supper, whichever way you say it. It's not about a stipulation on salvation that you must do this in order to get saved. No, he's saying, you must be in me. You must feast upon the living bread, the living water that I provide. You must be brought back to life. That's what he's saying. And who is the only one who can give us new life? Jesus. I think Sproul makes another great point as well in, in saying that Jesus is speaking here of, and kind of making a point of going deeper than just the superficial relationship, right? Think about the idea of feasting. Uh, because that's what that word feeding, if you, if you feed upon Christ, you're feasting upon Him. That's why uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of churches in the early days had a love feast, and they would have Lord's Supper, and then they would have a feast together as, as, a, as a church and commune. That's something we try to do very often here. And that is godly, and that is ordained historically, and we see that throughout history in the church, to have feasts together. But those feasts are deeper than just sitting down and having a meal. It's, it's deeper than going to Mitoro and ordering uh, pollo a carbone or something like that. You know what I mean? It's different. This feasting is a communion. It is a fellowship. It is a union with Christ. So we're not to hover over the surface of who Christ is. We're not to just hover over the surface and take only the shallow pieces. Why would we do that when we, there's so much to dig into and feed on of Christ? We need to dive into the depths of what the Word says about who our Savior is. What does it mean to be in Christ? How can we know? We dig deeper. We feast upon Him. That's how. Many, however, took offense at what Jesus is saying here. Verse 61 says, But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? The very folks who had been following him, hearing his words, learning from him, were not liking what he was saying. So what I'm saying is people haven't changed in thousands of years, right? We face it constantly in today's society and the visible church. We do. When dealing with the truth and scripture. In our world, the, ch- the truth is a lot of times an offense. We tell the truth. If we, if we say anything like God made male and female, people take that offensively. If we say things like traditional marriage between a man and a woman is what God ordained and designed, it's taken as offense. But it's what God said. 
and it's His Word. And that's what we count on. That's what we believe in. And when you deal with the truth, people are going to take offense. And unfortunately, there are many in the modern church, the visible church, not the big C church, the little C church, that will take offense at these things. Jesus was not, listen, Jesus wasn't speaking offensively. There's a difference between giving an offense and taking an offense, right? We can take offense to anything anybody says, right? And then there's some people who like to give them out, right? Unfortunately, those people that you try and avoid, right, at the family gatherings, That's the difference between something being offensive and somebody taking an offense. These disciples of Christ were taking an offense at what he was saying. <clears throat> Verse 62 says, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He's saying, he's saying this, Would it offend you if you saw me ascend to, to heaven from the Father? Would that be offensive to you? Of course it wouldn't be offensive to him. They'd be like us. What is going on, right? They'd be shouting and happy like they were on the day of ascension, right? Until they were standing alone and like, uh, what do we do now? And the guy had to, the angel had to say, hey, y'all need to go and spread the gospel and stuff. That's the point. Listen to this. Let, this, let, let what I'm fixing to say to you be something that you implant in your head, okay? Can we just take the easy, victorious sayings of Christ and just leave the hard, difficult sayings which challenge our mind and our hearts? When we come to something in Scripture and it's hard, or maybe it gives us a gut check, right? We feel conviction. Do we throw it out? We must take the hard with the easy. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This verse has two parts I'd like to look at. Easy to find those two parts, right? Because they put a period right in the middle of it. The first part, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Jesus is hearkening back to the things that he has been repeatedly saying throughout the gospel, okay? This is no surprise that the Spirit gives life and the flesh doesn't help with it. In John 3, 6, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He was saying that to Nicodemus, talking about the new birth. In John 4, 23, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. He tells a Samaritan woman of the new birth. These things are not new. There's a constant in it that in our flesh we can do nothing that is of God. We cannot worship and work our way in the flesh to be good enough for Jesus. We need to be born again. We need brand new life. 
You've often probably seen the, the illustration about salvation, about uh, how you'll see some people in a boat and you'll see one guy drowning, oh, la, 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 help me, right? And that the, that salvation is, is, is reaching down and helping the drowning man in the boat, right? We've seen that. That is so inaccurate. Do you want to hear an accurate description? I heard R.C. Sproul give this accurate description, and I said, that is it. That's exactly what happened to me. It's more like Jesus jumping out of the boat, swimming to the very bottom of the, of the river, and there's bones there. And he picks up the bones, and he brings them up, and by the time he's hit the surface, there is a man alive. That is salvation. He brings dead people to life, and you don't have any help in it. He is the giver of life. He's the living bread. He's the living water. How can I think that anything I do gets me to his good graces? How can I make myself alive? I've never seen anybody dead and not breathing give themselves CPR or use a defibrillator. Why? Dead people can't do that. They need somebody to resuscitate them. Jesus brings us to life. Then it says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Sproul asks a very good question here as he discusses this part of the verse. Let's ask ourselves that question. How does the spirit make us alive? How does the spirit make us alive? I think if you took a poll of evangelicals today, you would probably have a million different answers. A million of them. And a lot of them would have something to do with feelings. Like how they felt about things. It's clear, however, if you read the words of Christ and the apostles, how the Holy Spirit gives life. You ready? The Word of God. That's how He gives life to us. From creation to justification to sanctification to consummation of the kingdom, the Word of God what God himself has said is the only life-giving force that we see. For there are some of you, in verse 64 and 65, who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So we see the Spirit giving life through the power of the Word, right? What is, what is the gospel? It's the power of God unto salvation. Then we see Jesus saying, no one can get to me unless it's granted by the Father. So he's straight with him. He's, he knew every single motivation for following him. And there were many. There were sign chasers. They were the ones who saw him do the signs and the wonders and the miracles, and they're like, oh, this is cool. This is cool. I like this. Or maybe they were the ones who wanted full bellies because they sat down as the bread was broken and the fish were broken up, and they got to eat full bellies, and then they saw all the fragments taken up. So they said, if we follow him, we'll stay, we'll stay full. We won't be hungry. And then there were the snakes in the grass who were looking to trip him up or waiting for a chance to betray him. He knew him. He knew those that are his 
from all eternity. Those that the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. He knew his elect and those that the Father had, had granted to come to him. And he knew many of these people were not them. They could not and would not believe. And because of this, we see one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. You ready? Verse 66. Isn't that odd that it's chapter 6, verse 66? We're not going to get into the mark of the beast. Don't worry, guys. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Is that not the saddest verse in Scripture? They left him. They walked away from Jesus, the very Son of God, in flesh before them. The one who fed the 5,000, the one who did miracles, the one who healed people, the one who made the, the blind see and the lame walk. They left him. Why? Because they got offended. They didn't like what he was saying, so they said, we're out. And that really brings to light the prevalent deception in the modern visible church that success is measured by numbers. I lived it, guys. I lived it. Success is not measured by numbers. I've heard it said, well, it must be God. Look how successful it is. What would the growth coaches say to Jesus? We talked a little bit about that this morning in a prayer meeting. What would the growth coach say to Jesus after seeing all these people leave him? A major drop in followers. Whew. They, they would probably tell Jesus, all right, you need to relaunch, okay? You need to relaunch your ministry. Uh, you need to restructure your, your hierarchy, your staff. You need to get rid of, your, get rid of some of your staff and, and put better people in position. Or, or they may even say, you need to rename your ministry, okay? Jesus walking on the water ministry, something like that, something really catchy, something that will bring people in. You need to change your message. Need to keep it simple so anybody off the street can answer. Don't answer any questions that people aren't asking. That was some, some advice I was given by somebody who was a growth coach. Don't ask, answer any questions that people aren't asking. And you know what I came, came to find out within months? People weren't asking the right questions. We need to tell them about Jesus. We need to preach Christ and Him crucified. Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Guess what we need to preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to Christ. A mentor of mine told me one time, and this is a good mentor, not a bad one. I've had some bad ones too. Revival happens at both ends of the pew. Isn't that an interesting saying? That there are times that people do need to go. But guess what? People will come. Preach the gospel. Caledonia Baptist Church, preach the gospel. God will add the increase. So Jesus, in verse 67, so Jesus said to the disciples, do you want to go away as well? 
The verse gives the impression, and I want you to understand, listen to the way the verse is put, okay? Some, so many times we read things into verses, when sometimes we just need to read what the verse says, how it says it. This mass of disciples had left him, yet it says, Jesus turns to the twelve. It says, do you want to go away as well? Well, guess what that gives the impression? That he's left there standing with the twelve. The multitude's gone. He asks that important question. Do you also want to go away? Are you going to leave too? This is important to ask within the context of our culture today. In our society. In the political systems and the fad-based emotion-driven world, are we going to stay with historic, biblical, Christian church values, or are we going to turn and start preaching the modern thing, appealing to the masses? Are we going to start preaching our political views as opposed to the gospel? Are we going to start dimming the lights and adding a fog machine and, and singing what has been described, and I think it's probably pretty accurate, love songs to our bearded girlfriend Jesus. And if, if you've heard any of these songs that are modern, these modern worship songs, that's what they are. They're trying to sing love songs to Jesus when Jesus wants to hear his word sung. That's why here at Caledonia Baptist Church, we sing the Word. We preach the Word. We pray the Word. We believe the Word. We don't need emotion-based, fad-based ideas so we can fill the pews. We need Christ. And some fellas in the group got it. He asked, do you want to go away as well? How'd they answer? Who's going to answer? If you know anything about Scripture, you know who's going to answer. You know Peter's going to answer. And Peter says, he answered him in verse 68, 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Only Christ is the way. His word is life. May we all feel as passionate about the words that Jesus has spoken as Peter does here. Who are we going to go to? You're the only one given life with your words. Let's finish the text. Verse 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, Did I, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? You spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I want to give a word on Judas. Um, you know, Brother Kelby put up a, put up a post about Judas uh, recently as well. Um, I'll never forget looking on Facebook and seeing where somebody who professed to be an evangelical Christian had tattooed on their arm, Judas 8-2. And I saw this long, wishy-washy post about it. Just a word on Judas. 
He's become a glorified figure in evangelical circles recently. Yeah, he did eat. He did eat. And that is how he was identified by Christ as the betrayer. What did he say? Whoever dips after me, it is he who will betray me. So yeah, Judas did eat to show that he was a betrayer of Christ. He's called a devil here. He's called the son of perdition or the son of destruction in other places. He is the betrayer of Christ. We don't lovingly tell Judas' story. He's not a sympathetic figure. We who are in Christ and his church do not need to identify with him. He killed himself because of blood guilt and is currently in hell suffering and most likely cursing the name of the one he betrayed on earth. We as Christians run to Christ for relief from our guilt and our sin, not to the rope. And if we're in Christ, we're no longer betrayers. We're sons and daughters. Let's look at the example Christ sets here and see what's most important. And that's this. Out of all the multitude, 11 men got it. How do we know that they got it? Because they invested their lives to the death. The only one that wasn't killed for his faith was John. But I would argue he was severely burned and exiled on the island of Patmos. Just because he died of old age doesn't mean he didn't suffer. But you see people like Matthew who goes all the way to Ethiopia and is killed starting a church. You see people like Doubting Thomas who goes all the way to India and they kill him because he's tearing down their idols and people are being saved. These men got it. They never left. They invested their life, their blood, their treasure in Christ. How could we ever leave such a Savior? So the overarching theme is this. Some may leave, but guess what? Christ never does. I had to do it. I'm required by law to give you a J.C. Ryle quote. It must never surprise us to see and hear of such cases in our own days. And he's talking about people leaving the church over offense or, or, or sound teaching. If it happened in our Lord's time and under our Lord's teaching, much more may we expect it to happen now. Above all, it must never shake our faith and discourage us in our course. On the contrary, we must make up our minds that there will be backsliders in the church as long as the world stands. The sneering infidel who defends his unbelief by pointing at them must find some better argument than their example. He forgets that there will always be counterfeit coin where there is true money. Jesus spoke to many, huge crowds, and they all heard the same words, and 11 got it. Are some of the things he said hard to grasp at times? Yes, they are. But 11 men got it. They got the point. They heard and knew that these were the words of life, and to all who hear them, their life. Jesus is clear in chapter 10 of John why this is true. John 10, 27 through 29, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So his sheep hear his voice. Goats don't. A sheep loves the word of the shepherd. If you've ever seen a video of a shepherd walking up to a fence, and all he's got to do is sometimes they have a special call, and all the sheep run to him, right? And if you know a goat, you can call and call and call, and they ain't coming. The goat thinks it's too hard and needs to be changed to fit their need or ignores it. The word for a member of his flock is life. For a goat, the word of God is an offense or it's taken too seriously. Have you ever been told that you're taking it too seriously? You're taking this Bible and the, this Christianity too seriously? Have you ever been told uh, it's so dry, there's so much Bible? That's the richest part to me about this, about this, about this church right here. How much Bible we learn, how much Bible we, we pay attention to. A sheep lives for the words of its shepherd. And a goat lives for entertainment, experiences, and emotion. That leads me to the point of application. And I hope it challenges us. So, we who are his sheep must live in his word. We who are his sheep must live in his word, right? Here's why. The first reason why is this. It gives life. The gospel is life to us who are in Christ. It is the means that brought about our resurrection. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The word of God has resurrected us, brought us to life. Secondly, it helps us to know our shepherd. We can only know God. Hear me clearly here. We can only know God as he has revealed himself in his word. Our God is not one of our own choosing. We can't make up our own God. Do you know what we're doing when we do that? We're making a new golden calf. Because some people think, well, they were worshiping a golden calf. No, do you know what they said the calf's name was? The God who brought us out of Egypt. They made a God that matched what they wanted. They made God into something else that he wasn't. And what happened? A whole bunch of folks died. We know our shepherd by what he has said about himself. Three, it distinguishes us from the goats. A goat will not stand for a life based on God's word, and the goat has no desire for it at all. But guess what? The sheep eats it up. They love it. It's food. It's breath. And fourthly, and probably the most important about why we must live in his word is this. It is a command of Christ. John 8, 31 through 32 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We must abide in his word to be his disciples. So I'm going to leave you with a challenge. And who is this challenge for? Me. You. All who could hear. Who do we think we are? to neglect and ignore the word that Christ gave us. That he gave us as our light to our feet and our lamp to our path. Who are we to ignore and neglect it as if we don't need to pick it up? We're to live in his word.
Men died to make sure that we had this word. Men like Stephen, who the Pharisees plugged their ears while he was given the word as he was to end and stoned him. Like John Huss, one of the first martyrs of the Reformation, who died trying to give the word to the people. Like Paul, who went through every type of suffering you could imagine to take the word of God to Rome. And he ended up in the house of the emperor, giving the word of God, and he died for his faith. Or like William Tyndale, who was choked to death and burned, and when he was buried, it was later dug up, and they destroyed it so he could not have a burial place. These men have seen the absolute necessity of God's word for the believer, and they made sure we could have it. So, you ready? Practical? Get a plan. Set a time. Make it a priority. Teach the word of God to your kids. Because you will never regret spending time in God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, we are forever thankful for your word. That it is available to us. That we don't have to question or try and figure out who you are. For you have made known to us through your word exactly who you are. We can trust you and we can trust what your word says about you. Help us to live in it. Help us to dig into it. Help us to desire it like our next meal. Help us to teach it to our children. Help us to teach it to our wives and to our husbands. Help us to speak it to each other. Father, we thank you for a church that sings the word, prays the word, reads the word, preaches the word, believes the word. God, we thank you for that, that we have a place where we can come and we can hear the truth every Sunday. Father, help us to desire that. Father, I pray for those who may not be in Christ. Father, let this sermon be a rock in their shoe until they can no longer stand it. They must repent and come to you for the salvation of their soul. Sinner, you must repent and turn to Christ. He is your only hope. Run to him and cling to him for the salvation of your souls. Father, we thank you for your love and mercy and kindness towards us, sinners in need of a Savior. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.